City of Shadows, Chapter 14b The door gave way like a tombstone, with a sudden groan exhaling dank, foul-smelling air. I pushed the front door inwards, discovering a corridor that sank into darkness. The place was stuffy and rinked of damp. Spiraling threads of grime and dust hung from the ceiling like white hair. The broken floor tiles were covered by what I looked like a layer of ash. I also noticed what appeared to be footprints making their way into the apartment. Holy mother of God, mumbled the caretaker. There's more shit here than on the floor of a hen house. If you'd rather, I'll go on my own, I said. That's exactly what you would like. Come on, you go ahead, I'll follow. We'll close the door behind us and waited by the entrance for a moment until our eyes became accustomed to the dark. I could hear the nervous breathing of a caretaker and notice the sour smell of her sweat. I felt like a tomb robber, her soul is poisoned by greed and desire. Hey, what's that noise? I asked the caretaker in an anxious tone. Something fluttered in the dark, a pale shape disturbed by our presence. I thought I glimpsed a pale shape flickering about the end of the corridor. Pigeons, I said. They must have gotten through the broken window and made a nest here. Those ugly birds give me the creeps, said the caretaker, and they shit like there's no tomorrow. Relax, Dona Aurora. The only attack were with our hunger. We ventured in a few steps till we reached the end of the corridor, where a dining room opened into a balcony. Just visible was a shabby table covered with tattered tablecloth that looked more like shroud. Four chairs held awake together with a couple of grimly glass cabinets that guarded the crockery, an assortment of glasses and a tea set. In a corner stood the old upright piano that had belonged to Sedox's mother. The keys were dark with dirt, and the joints could hardly be seen under the film of dirt. An armchair with a long, threadbare cover was slowly disintegrating next to the balcony. Beside it was a coffee table, on which rested a pair of reading glasses and a Bible bound in pale leather and edged with gold, of the sort that used to be given as presents for a child's first communion. It still had its bookmark, a piece of scarlet string. Look, that chair is where the old man was found dead. The doctor said he'd been there for two days. How sad to go like that, like a dog, all alone. Not that he didn't have it coming, but even so. I went up to the armchair where Fortuny had died. Next to the Bible was a small box containing a black and white photograph. Old studio portraits. I knelt down to examine them, almost afraid to touch them. I felt as if I was profaning the memories of a poor old man, but my curiosity got the better of me. The first print showed a young couple with a boy who could not have been more than four years old. I recognized him by his eyes. Look, there they are, Signor Fortuny as a young man, and her. Didn't Julian have any brothers or sisters? The caretaker shrugged her shoulders and let out a sigh. I heard rumors that she had miscarried once because of the beatings her husband gave her, but I don't know. People love to gossip, don't they? But not me. All I know is that Julian told the other kids in the building that he had a sister only he could see. He said that she came out of mirrors as if she were made of thin air and that she lived with Satan himself in a palace at the bottom of a lake. My Isabelita had nightmares for a whole month. That child could be really morbid at times. I glanced at the kitchen. There was a broken pane in a small window overlooking the inner courtyard, and you could hear the nervous and hostile flapping of the pigeon's wings on the other side. Do all the apartments have the same layout? I asked. The ones that looked onto the street do, but this one is an attic, so it's a bit different. There's a kitchen and a laundry room that overlooks the inner yard. Down this corridor there are three bedrooms and a bathroom at the end. Properly decorated, they can look very nice, believe me. This one is similar to my Isabelita's apartment, but of course right now it looks like a tomb. You know which room is Julian's? The first door is the master bedroom. The second is a smaller room, and it was probably that one, I'd say. I went down the corridor. The paint in the walls was falling off in shreds. At the end of the passage, the bathroom door was ajar. 
A face seemed to stare at me from the mirror. It could have been mine, or perhaps the face of the sister who lived there. As I got closer, it withdrew into darkness. I tried to open the second door. It's locked, I said. The caretaker looked at me in astonishment. These doors don't have locks, she said. This one does. Then the old man must have put it in, because all the other apartments didn't have it. I looked down and noticed that the footprints in the dust led up to the locked door. Someone's been in this room, I said. Recently. Don't scare me, said the caretaker. I went up to the other door. I didn't have a lock. It opened with a rusty groan when I touched it. In the middle stood an old four-postered bed, unmade. The sheets had turned yellowish like winding sheets, and a crucifix presided over the bed. The room also contained a chest of drawers with small mirror on it, a basin, a pitcher, and a chair. A cupboard, its door ajar, stood against the wall. I went around the bed to the bedside table with a glass top, under which lay photographs of ancestors, funeral cards, and lottery tickets. On the table were a carved wooden music box and a pocket watch, frozen forever on twenty past five. I tried to wind up the music box, but the melody could stuck after six notes. When I opened the door of the bedside table, I found an empty spectacle case, a nail clipper, a hip flask, and a medal of the Virgin Lourdes. Nothing else. There must be a key to that room somewhere, I said. The manager must have it. Look, I think it's best we leave. Suddenly, I looked down at the music box. I lifted the cover, and there, blocking the mechanism, I found a gold key. I took it out, and the music box resumed its tinkling melody. I recognized the tune by Ravel. This must be the key, I smiled at the caretaker. Listen, if the room was locked, there must be a reason. Even if it was just out of respect for the memory of, if you'd rather, you can wait for me down in your apartment, Dona Aurora. You're a devil. Go on, open it if you must. I breathed a cold air whistled through the hole in the lock, licking at my fingers while I inserted the key. The lock the Signor Fortuny had fitted in the door of his unoccupied room was three times the size of the one on the front door. Donna Aurora looked at me apprehensively, as if we were about to open Pandora's box. Is this room at the front of the house? I asked. The caretaker shook her head. It's a small window for ventilation. It looks out over the yard. I pushed the door inward. An impenetrable well of darkness opened up before us, the meager light from behind barely scratching at the shadows. The window overlooking the yard was covered with pages of yellowed newspaper. I tore them off, and a needly of hazy light bored through the darkness. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, murmured the caretaker. The room was infested with crucifixes. They hung from the ceiling, dangling from ends of strings, and they covered the walls, hooked on nails. There were dozens of them. You could sense them in every corner, carved with a knife on the wooden furniture, scratched on the floor tiles, painted red on the mirrors. The footprints that had led us to the doorway could now be traced on the dust around the naked bed, just a skeleton of wires and worm-eaten wood. At the end of the room under the window stood a closed roll-top desk, crowded by a trio of metal crucifixes. I opened it with care. There was no dust in the joints of the wooden slots, from which I inferred that the desk had been opened quite recently. It had six drawers. The lock had been forced open. I inspected them one by one. Empty. I knelt down by the desk and fingered the scratches covered by the wood, imagining Julius Serax's hands making those doodles, hieroglyphs whose meanings had been obscured by time. In the desks, I noticed a pile of notebooks and a vase filled with pencils and pens. I took one of the notebooks and glanced at it. Drawings in single words, mathematical exercises, unconnected phrases, quotes from books, unfinished poems. All the notebooks looked the same. Some drawings were repeated page after page with slight variations. I was struck by the figure of a man who seemed to be made of flames. Another might have been an angel or a reptile coiled around a cross. Rough sketches hinted at a fantastic rambling house woven with towers and cathedral-like arches. 
The strokes were confident and showed a certain ability. Young Sarax appeared to be the draftsman of some promise, but none of the drawings were more than the rough sketches. I was about to put the last notebook back in its place without looking at it when something slipped out from its pages and fell at my feet. It was a photograph in which I recognized the same girl who appeared in the other picture, the one taking at the foot of the building. The curl posed in a luxurious garden and beyond the treetops just visible was the shape of a house I had seen in sketches and drawings of the adolescent Sarax. I recognized it immediately. It was the villa called the White Friar on Avenida del Tibidabo. On the back of the photograph was an inscription that simply said, Penelope who loves you. I put it in my pocket, closed the desk, and smiled at the caretaker. Seen enough? She asked, anxious to leave the place. Almost, I replied. Before you said the son, soon after Julian left for Paris, a letter came for him, but his father told you to throw it away. The caretaker hesitated for a moment, and then she nodded. I put the letter in the drawer of the cabinet at the entrance hall, in case the French woman should come back one day. It must still be there. We went down to the cabinet and opened the top drawer. An oak-colored envelope lay on the top of a collection of stopped watches, buttons, and coins that had ceased being legal tender twenty years ago. I picked up the envelope and examined it. Did you read it? What do you take me for? I meant no offense. It would have been quite natural under the circumstances if you thought that Julian was dead. The caretaker shrugged, looked down, and started walking towards the door. I took advantage of that moment to put the letter inside a pocket of my jacket. Look, I don't want you to get the wrong impression, said the caretaker. Of course not. What did the letter say? It was a love letter, like the stories on the radio, only sadder. Because it sounded as if it was really true. Believe me, I felt like a crying when I read it. You're all heart, Dona Aurora, and you're a devil. The same afternoon, after saying goodbye to Dona Aurora and promising that I would keep her up to date with my investigations on Julian Sarax, I went along to see the manager of the apartment block. Senor Molins had seen better days and now moldered away in filthy first floor office in Calle Florida Blanca. Still, Molins was as cheerful as self-satisfied individual. His mouth was glued to a half-smoked cigar that seemed to grow out of his mustache. It was hard to tell whether he was asleep or awake because he breathed like most people snore. His hair was greasy and flattened over his forehead, and he had mischievous piggy eyes. His suit wouldn't have fetched more than 10 pesetas in the Encatas flea market, but he made up for it with a gaudy tie of tropical colors. Judging by the appearance of the office, not much was managed anymore, except the bugs and cobwebs of a forgotten Barcelona. We're the middle of refurbishment, he said apologetically. To break the ice, I let drop Aurora's name as if I was referring to some old friend of the family. When she was young, she was a real looker, was Moline's comment. With age, she has gone on the heavier side, but then I'm not what I used to be either. You might believe this, but when I was your age, I was an Adonis. Girls would go on their knees to beg for a quickie, or to have my babies. Alas, the 20th century is nothing but shit. What could I do for you, young man? I presented him with a more or less plausible story about supposed distant relationship with the Fortunis. After five minutes, Chatter Molinas dragged himself to his filing cabinet and gave me the address of the lawyer who dealt with anything related to Sophie Sarax, Julian's mother. Let me see. Jose Maria Requejo, 59 Calle Leon. But we send the mail twice a year to a P.O. box in the main post office via Leetana. Do you know Senor Requejo? I've spoken to his secretary occasionally on the telephone. The fact is that any business with him is done by post, and my secretary deals with that. And today she's at the hairdresser's. Lawyers don't have time for face-to-face -face dealings anymore. There are no gentlemen left in the profession. There didn't seem to be any reliable addresses left either. I quick glance at the street guide on the manager's desk confirmed what I suspected. The address of the supposed lawyer, Senor Requejo, didn't exist. I told Mr. Molines, who took it the news as if it was a joke. Well, I'll be damned, I see said loving. What did I say? Crooks.
The manager laid back in his chair and made another of his snoring noises, which happened to have the number of the P.O. box. According to the index, it's 2837. Although I can't read my secretary's numbers, as I'm sure you know, women are no good at maths. What they're good for is, may I see the card? Sure, help yourself. He handed me the index card and I looked at it. Numbers were perfectly illegible. The P.O. box was 2321. It horrified me to think of the accounting that must have been done in that office. Did you have some much contact with Senior 420 during his lifetime? I asked. So-so, quite the aesthetic type. I remember that when I found out that the French woman had left him, I invited him to go whoring with a few mates of mine, nearby in a fabulous establishment. I knew next to the La Paloma dance hall. Just to cheer him up, eh? That's all, and you know what? He would not talk to me. He even greet me in the street anymore, as if I were invisible. What do you make of that? I'm in shock. What else can you tell me about the Fortuny family? Do you remember them well? Those were different times, he murmured nostalgically. The fact is that I already knew Grandfather Fortuny, the one who started the hat shop. About the son, there isn't much to tell. Now, the wife, she was spectacular. What a woman. And decent, too. Despite all the rumors and the gossip. Like the one about Julian's not being Fortuny's legitimate son? And where did you hear that? As I said, I'm part of the family and everything gets out. None of that was ever proved, but it was talked about, I said encouragingly. People talk too much. Humans are descended from the monkeys. They come from parrots. And what did people say? Don't you feel like a little glass of rum? It's Cuban, like all the good stuff that kills you. No thanks, but I'll keep you company in the meantime. You can tell me. Antoni Fortuny, whom everyone called the Hatter, met Sophie Serrax in 1899 by the steps of the Barcelona Cathedral. He was returning from making a vow to St. Usse for all the saints. St. Eustace was considered the most diligent and the least few fussy when it came to granting miracles to do with love. Antoni Fortuny, who was already over 30 and confirmed bachelor, was looking for a wife. It wanted her right away. Sophie was a French girl who lived in a boarding house for young ladies in Calleriara and gave private music and piano lessons to the offspring of the most privileged families in Barcelona. She had no family or capital to rely on, only her youth and what musical education she had received from her father, the pianist at the Nîmes Théâtre, before he died of tuberculosis in 1886. Antoni Fortuny, on the contrary, was a man on the road to prosperity. He had recently inherited his father's business, a hatchet of some repute in the Ronda de San Antonio, where he had learned the trade and he dreamed one day teaching his own son. He found Sophie Serac's fragile, beautiful, young, docile, and fertile. Setustasa had obliged after four months of insistent courting, Sophie accepted Antoni's marriage proposal. Signor Molins, who had been a friend of Fortuny the Elder, warned Antoni that he was marrying a stranger. He said that Sophie seemed like a nice girl, but perhaps this marriage was a bit too convenient for her, and he should wait for a year at least. Antoni Fortuny replied that he already knew everything he needed to know about his future wife. The rest did not interest him. They were married at the Basilica del Pino and spent their three-day honeymoon in a spa in the nearby seaside report, the Mangot. The morning before they left, the Hatter asked Signor Molins, in confidence, to be initiated into the mysteries of the bedroom. Molins sarcastically told him to ask his wife. The newlyweds returned to Barcelona after only two days. The neighbor said Sophie was crying when she came into the building. Years later, Vicenteda swore that Sophie had told her the following, that the Hatter had not laid a finger on her, and that when she tried to seduce him, he called her a whore and told her he was disgusted by the obscenity of what she was proposing. Six months later, Sophie announced that her husband that she was with child, by another man. Antoni Fortuny had seen his own father hit his mother on countless occasions and did what he thought was the right thing to do. He stopped only when he feared that one more bull would kill her. Despite the beating, Sophie refused to reveal the identity of the child's father. 
applying his own logic to the matter, and Tony Fertitta decided it must be the devil, for that child was a child of sin, and Sid had only one father, the evil one. Convinced in this manner that sin had snuck into his home and also between his wife's thighs, the Hatter took to hanging crucifixes everywhere, on the walls, on the doors of all the rooms, and on the ceiling. When Sophie discovered him scattering crosses in the bedroom to which she had been confined, she grew afraid, and with tears in her eyes, asked him whether he had gone mad. Blind with rage, he turned around and hit her. A whore like the rest, he spat as he threw her onto the landing, after flaying her with blows with her from his belt. The following day, when Antony Fortuny opened the door of his apartment to go down to the hat shop, Sophie was still there, covered in dry blood and shivering with cold. The doctors never managed to fix the fractures in her right hand completely. Sophie Sarax would never be able to play piano again, but she would give birth to a boy whom would be named Julian after the father she had lost when she was still too young, as happens with all good things in life. Fortuny considered throwing her out of his home, but thought that the scandal would not be good for business. Nobody would buy hats for a man known to be a cuckold. The two didn't go together. From then on, Sophie was assigned to a dark, cold room at the back of the apartment. It was there she gave birth to her son with the help of two neighbors. And Tony did not return home until three days later. This is the son God has given you, Sophie announced. If you want to punish anyone, punish me. But not an innocent creature. The boy needs a home and a father. My sins are not his. I beg you to take pity on us. The first months were difficult for both of them. Antony Fortuny had downgraded his wife to the rank of a servant. They no longer shared a bed or a table and rarely exchanged any words, except to resolve some domestic matter. Once a month, usually coinciding with a full moon, Antony Fortuny showed up in his Sophie's bedroom at dawn and without a word, charged at his former wife with vigor but little skill. Making the most of these rare and aggressive moments of intimacy, Sophie tried to win him over by whispering words of love and caressing him, but the Hatter was not man of frivolities an eagerness of desire evaporated in a matter of minutes, or even seconds. These assaults brought no children. After a few years, Antoni Fortuny stopped visiting Sophie's chamber for good and took up the habit of reading the Gospels until the small hours, seeking in them a solace for his torment. With the help of the Gospels, the Hatter had made an effort to kindle some affection for the child with deep eyes who loved making a joke of everything and inventing shadows where there were none. Despite his efforts, Antoni Fortuny was unable to feel as if the little Julian were his flesh and blood, nor did he recognize any aspect of himself in him. The boy, for his part, did not seem very interested in either hats or the teachings of Catholicism. During the Christmas season, he would amuse himself by changing the positions of the small figures in the nativity scene and devising plots in which baby Jesus had been kidnapped by three magi from the east who had wicked intentions. He soon became obsessed with drawing angels with wolf's teeth and inventing stories about hooded spirits that came out of the walls and ate people's ideas while they slept. In time, the Hatter lost all hope about being able to set this boy on the right path. The child was not Fortuny and would never be. Julian maintained that he was bored in school and came home with notebooks full of drawings and monstrous beings, winged serpents and buildings that were alive, walked and devoured the unsuspecting. By then it was quite clear that fantasy and adventure interested him far more than daily reality around him. Of all the disappointments amassed during his lifetime, none hurt Antony Fortuny more than the son whom the devil had sent to mock him.